0: Welcome to Happiness Unleashed with your host, Brittany Derenbacher, presented by Live Happy. In this episode, Brittany is joined by Joanne Cacciatore, better known as Dr. Joe, a professor at Arizona State University and director of the Graduate Certificate in Trauma and Bereavement. Dr. Joe also is founder of Sela Care Farm near Sedona, Arizona which offers 20 acres of farmland where grieving family members can heal amongst rescued animals that have been abused, neglected, or discarded. Dr. Joe is here to explain how animals and humans can help each other through their painful journeys as they recover from their grief. Let's have a listen.
1: You're doing something really unique and profound out in Sedona with animals. You've created an intentional community where people can come and heal from trauma and grief surrounded by animals and earth-based practices. Can you tell us more about that?
2: Sure. Sella Care Farm, we have been around literally seven and a half years, but In planning about eight and a half years. And we have 20 acres here, and we are on what's called Oak Creek, which is more like a river. It's the headwaters are in Flagstaff. And so we have 2,000 or so feet on Oak Creek, and all of our animals are rescued. So they've all been rescued from varying levels of abuse, or torture, or homelessness, or starvation. We have goats, and sheep, and cows, and pigs, and horses, and donkeys, alpacas. I mean, dogs and cats, of course, and I'm sure I'm missing somebody, (laughs) but we have a lot of different animals here and they are profoundly meaningful for the people who come here. That's one of the things, you know, I'm a professor at Arizona State University. And one of the things in my research that we have found is that People love the counseling they get here because everyone is trained in traumatic grief and everyone has their own. All of our counselors are required to have their own practice and do their own deep work, which is not something that you see across the board with therapists, right? And so people love coming here for the animals and they love, I mean, for the humans, the counseling and the nature and each other. But over and over and over again in the research, the animals emerge as the number one most transformative thing for people. And- I didn't expect that. I mean, I knew the animals would be meaningful for people. I just didn't know how meaningful it would be for them to interact with animals who also have known loss and terror and trauma and grief and sadness and loneliness and despair. And it's this sort of connection in capital O oneness that's that creates kind of a, almost
1: a, it is, it's a magical, albeit painful interaction have you always had a special relationship with animals in your life? Is there a reason that you chose to bring these two communities together?
2: Oh man, that's a great question that I don't get a lot. Yeah. I always have had a special thing with animals. When I was one and a half years old, a wild blue jay, we lived in Manhattan. My parents were immigrants. And so we lived in Manhattan and this wild blue jay flew into my house. I was one and a half. I have no cognizant memory, but a wild blue jay flew into our house and attached herself to me <laughs> and was with me, I think, several days. So my father called. A reporter and they came out and took a picture. So I have a picture of me. I believe it was the New York times in the New York times with this wild blue jay sitting on my little dress. I have always had a soft spot for animals. I haven't eaten them since 1972. I have always known that they had some kind of existential self or soul. I've always seen in them deep emotions and not just sort of the primal things that you would think of and not just the domestic animals, but even in my limited interaction, because before the care farm, I had limited interaction with farm animals, but even before we had the farm and I and I interacted so much with farm animals, which people kind of think of as these blobs with no personalities. I had a sense people were wrong about them. I had a sense that they knew. And of course, I saw some videos early on, which is what converted me to, to stop eating animals. I was only seven years old when I did that. And mm-hmm. so as I watched these videos of these animals in, to be honest, in slaughterhouses, I could see the fear in their eyes. And I thought to myself, Oh, when I'm afraid, that's what it feels like to me. Those eyes, you know, the wide eyed, all the white around your eyes showing the look of terror on your face and i had been afraid i remember being afraid as a child i was raised in a in an interesting religious cult and they talked a lot about armageddon and i mm-hmm. remember being very very afraid of armageddon and so i really related to these animals who also had this look of fear and terror on their in their eyes so there was just always something in me that knew they were more than just blobs and it wasn't just dogs who had feelings and emotions and attachments so but it really wasn't until we got the farm animals and we started rescuing them because farm animals, until they feel safe, they're not free to be who they really are. That's the interesting thing about them. So like our goats, when we first rescue them, they run around terrified of you. And so you can't see their personalities. All you see is fear. Same thing with human beings, by the way, who have been abused, right? Human beings who have been tortured or abused, you can't see the full fruition of their character, their personality, because all you're seeing is fear and terror. All you're seeing is the flight, fight, freeze response. And it's the same thing with these animals. And so once they started to feel safe, then they could become who they really were. And so now we know that Gretel the goat is very timid and very shy, but also loves affection and warmth. And we know that Kurt loves affection and warmth too, but if food is available to him, he'll take food over affection and warmth. Now we know that Captain Von Trapp, we call him Mr. Loverboy, that he gets very jealous with another goat is getting more affection than he is. So he'll come and push the other goat away. So all of their personality and characterological propensities come out when they have the freedom to be who they really are, again, which is the same thing as human beings, when we're free to be who we are and we're accepted and we're liberated from coercion and pressure to be someone we're not, then we can experience the full manifestation of what
1: our true character is. Both spectrum self. The name for the care farm in Hebrew, Sela, yeah. means to pause and to reflect. I'm assuming that's intentional. It's quite intentional. It's it's an intentional
2: space to pause and reflect on grief and those mm-hmm. we love who died. And it's a word that I found many, many years ago, probably two decades ago. And I always knew like something special has to come from this word because it's such a powerful word. And so it was quite intentional. It was quite intentional to give a nod to the poetry of feeling our feelings.
1: Yeah, that's beautiful. How do the animals at the farm teach us to live again? Well, I think it's a less
2: direct path than that, right? Mm -hmm. I think what it is, is we, our farm is built on a a principle called Ahimsa, which is Mm -hmm. oneness literally and oneness and compassion, nonviolence for all beings. Mm -hmm. And once we create this space where we can recognize that there is no capital O other, as chief seattle said what we do to the web of life we do to ourselves and many religious and mystic traditions have always recognized this but once you realize that and you have an experience of oneness it's very hard it's like taking the red pill you can't untake it like it's very hard to see the world through through the lens of an anthropocentric view and so when people come here and they have this experience of This animal we've just rescued, who won't let anyone within 12 feet of his space because he's so terrified. And then they see him six months later getting love and cuddles and opening his heart to the possibility of trusting in the world again. Mm. People start to see themselves reflected in this creature who, without any effort, or I mean, I think that's the beautiful thing about it. Animals, just by being who they are, Show us the way, because they're non-coercive, they just do it naturally, and if we can connect with that inner you know animals, we're all animals, human beings are animals, we're just human animals as opposed to non-human animals. And so we're wired very similarly if we can see ourselves resonated in in an animal who has been on death's door and literally had given up hope for life, and we can see that animal flourish. And watch it flourish, watch him or her flourish. And deeper than that, maybe even be a part of that flourishing. Wow, I mean, that, it's a profound connection for people, and so they start making these little linkages between what did that animal need, and what did that animal do to get where he or she is. Needed good support, tenderness, care, love non-judgment. The animals don't walk around judging themselves about their feelings. The animals don't walk around going, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm so fearful. I can't, why am I so anxious? You know, they just work with what they have. And people start making those linkages and it is incredibly profound when you see it happening. It's beautiful, really. Many of our clients in the outtake surveys call it magical what happens here.
1: Mm -hmm. And explain to the listeners, like, what can... Clients expect coming in? What can participants expect coming in? Like, what would a day at the farm look like? Most people come here an average of four or five days.
2: It's a residential facility, so they stay on site. And if they come for an actual program, then it's reasonably structured. So they wake up in the morning, there's yoga. No, they don't have to participate in them in the program, but most people want to. So there's yoga, there's time with the animals, usually a few hours with the animals, taking care of the animals, brushing the animals, meeting the animals. They can do more with the animals too, if they so choose. If someone has horse experience, for example, and they want to go spend time with the animals or pick the horse's hooves or something, then we can accommodate that. A lot of people who come here don't have farm animal experience, though. Then we have an art therapist on staff. We have group meetings. We have individual counseling in some of our programs. We have yoga. We have meditation. So it depends on when they're coming and what their needs are.
1: What's some of the biggest lessons that you've learned in your time at the farm?
2: I think getting back into your body especially if you've had traumatic grief is one of those things that is very difficult for people because we can't get back into a body that doesn't feel safe, or we're much more reluctant to get back in a body that doesn't feel safe. And how do you feel safe in a body when everyone around you is telling you there's something wrong with you? Right. Because that's always the intimation about grief. You're grieving too hard, not doing it right. You're grieving too long. You should feel better by now. There are all these intimations that surround grieving people constantly that create a feeling of unsafety and loneliness. So why would they want to be back in their bodies? Not to mention the trauma alone creates a sense of heightened fear and terror in being in our own bodies. So I do think it's a combination of things for sure. As you said, And I also think the animals are tantamount. They're the centerpiece of everything that we do here.
1: How did the animals on the farm model that safety to feel? Like, what does that interaction look like?
2: I just think there's a spaciousness about them. Like, they're not in a hurry. They don't hand you a Kleenex and say, Time to move on. They just accept people for who they are and how they feel in the moment. If we have a somebody on the farm and they go sit underneath the willow tree and they're crying, Gretel or Captain Von Trapp, some of our more affectionate goats, will just go and sit next to them and lay next to them. Or a dog will do that. The horses, the horses are incredible beings. Horses, there have been several studies that show that horses more accurately interpret and predict human emotion than even our closest relative, non-human animal relatives, which is primates. Our horses help people be more aware of themselves and themselves in space and their own emotions. For example, Chimaco, my horse, he's sort of the whole reason the farm exists. He can tell when someone is extremely anxious. And if someone is very fearful around him or is having high anxiety, which is the same thing as fear, Mm -hmm. he'll back up. He'll take several steps back away from them, not toward them, but away from them to give them space. Mm-hmm. And then they notice that he does that. And then usually what happens is they'll look to me and I'll say, just notice how you're feeling. And they're saying, you know, my heart's beating really fast. I'm having a lot of fear. You know, I'm afraid of horses or I'm I'm thinking about my son and his love of horses and I'm missing him and I'm having a lot of fear come up or, or whatever. But it helps raise their self-awareness of their own current emotional state in the moment emotional state. And as they talk about it and process it, it starts to dilute it or dissipate. And as it does, Chamaco will come toward them. So, I mean, and the beautiful thing about it is it's without any words at all. Words get human beings in trouble, Brittany. I don't know if you've noticed that. <laughs> but Words get human beings in a lot of trouble. We have way too many words that we, when we should just, ch- 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 animals, just naturally communicate compassion and care. And also boundaries,
1: right? Without any words at all. Animals show up for us so differently than humans do, which is, I mean, and it's humbling, right? Because as a therapist, you know, I can watch my emotional support dog, Violet, go lay on my client and soothe them in a way that I cannot.
2: Myself and colleagues conducted a study and we asked, we wanted to find out who was providing the best grief support subjectively from the experience of grievers. I mean, there's all kinds of talk about grief support in the empirical literature, but very Mm -hmm. little, very few studies allow grievers to define what good support is. And so we asked about the actions and actors of good grief support. So one of the first things that we found was that emotional acts of caring and emotional support were the types of support that grievers most often wanted. They also appreciated practical support like Meal trains, you know, people cleaning their house and help with childcare. Those were those were helpful, but by far in the in the data, emotional support and emotional acts of caring were significantly more important than any other kinds of support. Okay, so that was the action, and then we asked who who are the people who are providing the best kinds of support. You name it. We asked about every human group there was. And then just before we were getting ready to hit publish on the survey, I had a thought. I said, you know what? I'm going to throw pets and animals in there just to see what happens. And I can tell you that pets and animals blew every human group out of the water, blew every human group. They came in at 89% satisfaction. The next highest group, the second highest group came in at 67% satisfaction. And that was support groups. That's one of the things I say when it comes to good grief support, be an animal, just sit and stay.
1: Mm, Yeah, that's beautiful. How has has your work with animals empowered you in your grief journey?
2: Oh wow. Well, you know, there's somewhere out there is a video where someone was interviewing me and I said pretty much every adult around me abandoned me. That's how it felt. They all wanted me to be who I was before, they wanted me to be better, they wanted me to stop crying. They thought I was, you know, going on and on and on, just have another child, you know, it'll be okay. I'm like you can't interchange kids, guys. It's not how it, it works. Work that way. So I remember that my dogs, I had two dogs at the time and they were amazing for me. I would just be in a moment of absolute utter despair sobbing on the couch and my dogs would come up and just put their heads on me and just sit with me. They didn't say, "Oh, you should stop crying or you should feel better by now or, you know, you're taking this too far." They just sat with me and accepted me. And the other the other being who sat with me was my 3-year-old who was smarter than every adult around me. I remember the time when she sat on the arm of the I was sitting crying and it was a hard morning. And she came and sat on the arm of the couch with me. And she said, mommy, it's okay to be sad. And it's okay to cry because babies aren't supposed to die. And I just looked at her and I go, you're a genius. Mm -hmm. You're a genius. All the adults around me are idiots, but you are a genius. And so I guess I realized, I mean, I've always had a love for animals, but I guess I realized in that moment That the smarter people, the more sophisticated people around me, didn't really know what was happening, were not emotionally intelligent, and that animals and children. Seemed to be much more emotionally intelligent to me, mm-hmm. and so my dogs played a really key role in helping me feel a little less lonely in the grief experience. And then fast forward to eight years ago, going on nine years ago, I met a horse named Chimaco, and his videos out there as well. He's sort of a famous horse, mm-hmm. and he was the most tortured animal we have on the farm. His entire back had bones protruding from his skin. He was 600 pounds underweight. He had huge, this big, gaping wounds on both of his sides where the metal of the saddle was strapped against his bare muscle. He was tortured, literally tortured beyond anything I've ever seen. And people just wanted to go on their vacation. They just wanted to have fun. And they walked past him over and over. And I just came upon him, but people literally were doing this as they walked by, so they didn't see him. They were averting their gaze, literally averting their gaze, because they wanted to have fun. And I remember thinking to myself, that's what it felt like when my daughter died. People averting their gaze. They didn't want to see my pain because it made them sad, because it ruined their holidays or their good time or their football game or whatever was happening. And I knew I was going to have to fight to rescue him. I I did. It was quite a fight (laughs) to rescue him. But I did because he was worthy of rescuing and also because he was me. Mm -hmm. I am that horse and that horse is me. We are no different. He was on death's door and and hopeless and terrified and uncertain he could live. And I was the same way in 1994, 1995, 1996, right after my daughter died. I was the same way. No one wanted to look at him. No one could bear to really see him. And many others could not bear to really see me. So rescuing him, saving his life, very worthy life, was saving my own life. My decision every day to live a compassionate life and to make choices that don't harm others, others broadly defined, both human and non-human animals, both the planet that we live on, my decision to live that way is a decision to also take care of myself because I am one with everything and they are one with me. And so... I think animals taught me that. Again, I've always had a soft spot for them, but I think they taught me that. I think they helped me awaken from this sort of very human-centric model of the world and see that what we are doing to this planet, we're doing to ourselves and our descendants and all beings with whom we share this planet. And what we do to a baby cow and her mother, we're doing to our own babies and to ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that, for me, is the only way I can live my life. I can't live my life any other way. So I would say animals probably have played more of a role than anything in my life, more than spirituality, my spiritual practice, more than my academic studies, more than friendships and family relationships even, because it's helped deepen all of those things. It's helped me really stay awake.
1: You know, we've spent a lot of time talking about how animals show up for us how animals can teach us mindfulness, how they can teach us to feel, how they can support us through our trauma and grief. How can we show up for them? How can we better show up for them?
2: (laughs) I'll be honest, we have to stop exploiting them. We have to. So here on the farm, for example, we don't ever say use animals. We engage our animals. We invite our animals, but we don't use them. The animals are never haltered and never forced to interact with anyone they don't want to except for the vet. They don't love the vet, but they have to get their Healthcare, and they don't always love it, love it, <laughs> but they're never coerced. They're never forced. This is an egalitarian model. Egalitarian is built into our model. It's called the attend model, and it's an acronym. And the E stands for egalitarianism, and that means that we balance power. The humans here are not more important than the animals. So the animal's well-being is prioritized just as high as the human well-being. So we try, we make every effort never to exploit our animals and to give them free choice and free will around with whom and when they interact. If they're tired and they don't want to come out, they don't have to come out. Having said that, this is a unique place. So how do we live in accord with nature and in a way that respects the autonomy of our animal brethren? And that's a tricky thing because our agricultural system is set up in such a way, our research system is set up in such a way, our beauty system is set up in such a way that animals are routinely exploited for human benefit. Mm. And that's a tough thing. It's a tough system to crack. And all we can do is vote with our dollar and change. So what I tell people is just start educating yourselves. Just start slowly. We move mountains. The Chinese have a a saying, we move mountains one stone at a time. And so slowly, slowly start to learn about the agricultural system, about big agriculture and how animals are exploited and what they do, for example, to ducks for down Mm -hmm. or what they do to sheep for the wool. Yes, of course, sheep need to be shorn because they're bred to have too much wool, but the ways in which we do it matter. There are several videos that people can watch. Start with something like what the health. The beautiful thing about animals is when we treat animals with respect, our bodies end up benefiting from it. The same beauty that we gift to animals if we choose with our dollar to eat differently, to put our makeup on differently or do our hair differently or wash our bodies differently. It happens to also benefit us.
1: We always close out the show sharing a story of an animal doing magic or working miracles. And I know that you work with a lot of animals, but is there a specific animal currently at the farm that comes to mind? We have an experience with a a sheep One of
2: our sheep had lost babies right after birth in a coyote attack. This was before we rescued her. That's why we rescued her because she wouldn't eat. She was a mother sheep and both her babies were dead and she stopped eating. So her value, if they lose weight, their value declined. So they were going to sell her for slaughter. So I bought her instead. I felt like we bereaved moms have to stick together. And... We had a bereaved mom who was here shortly after that, and she asked about the sheep what happened, and I told her about her two babies, and that's why she was so afraid. And there wasn't really an exchange, but this mom had lost her twins at birth. And there wasn't really an exchange between Artemisia and this mom at this point, because Artemisia was still too afraid. But just within this mom, her story, Artemisia's story- she stopped exploiting animals that day. She went completely vegan. She -hmm. stopped wearing wool. She stopped everything that day. And that was seven years ago. That was like when we were still camping out here, building everything. Mm -hmm. And she still practices that today. And of course, Artemisia at some point started interacting with people again and started eating again. But these things happen all the time with these animals without any effort. The animals don't come to this with an agenda. Like they're not thinking to myself, hey, I'm going to make this person feel better. I'm going to change this person's mind about animals. I'm going to connect with this person and help them develop self-awareness. They don't have an agenda. That's the most amazing thing, right? Therapists have an agenda. We have an agenda. We do. Mm -hmm. We can't deny it. All humans have an agenda, but Mm -hmm. animals have no agenda except just to be who they are. And I think That's some of the magic about this is that it's completely, utterly organic.
1: Dr. Joe, thank you so much for coming on Happiness Unleashed. This has been an honor to talk to you
0: and thank you so much. Thank you for having me. That was Brittany Derenbacher talking with Dr. Joe Cacciatore. If you'd like to learn more about Selah Care Farm, follow Dr. Joe on social media or discover her book, Bearing the Unbearable, visit our website at livehappy.com and click on the podcast tab. And of course, Brittany will be back here next month to talk more about how pets can bring us joy, help us heal, and be some of our best teachers. Until then, for everyone at Live Happy, this is Paula Phelps reminding you to make every day a happy one.